0: Welcome Sky community. Welcome to another episode of Sky Women. I am so excited that you're with us today. Welcome, it's Wednesday and another episode. We have a special guest with us today who I think many of you will be so interested to talk to. We may have to have her back. This is Dr. Carolina Sueldo. She is a double board certified OB-GYN and fertility specialist who is passionate about empowering women through education about their fertility. She is on social and trying to spread awareness uh, for women in regards to their fertility. Uh, this goes really beyond just patients, but other physicians also need to be aware of fertility issues. And the menstrual cycle is quite confusing. So I'm so excited that she is educating all
1: of us. Welcome, Dr. Saldo. Thank you so much, Dr. Morris. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's so important
0: that we really talk about infertility because I will tell you some things that really get me riled up, okay? I did not have great infertility training in my ob residency. And I think that that might be true. You know, some are really strong. We were extremely strong in gynecology, oncology, right? And maternal fetal medicine. But REI was one of those weak points in my program, in my opinion. So even the menstrual cycle for general ob is confusing. So imagine what it is. <laughs> for the general population. Right. But the things that get me really riled up is when a woman has really passed that fertility window and her only option is a donor egg and she feels devastated. Right. Because she's like in her career and like, why did nobody ever tell me that this was something I should be considering about freezing my eggs? You know, absolutely. Actually, you see those things again as well. And then, you know, somebody just willy nilly putting them on induction for ovulation, a medication to induce ovulation, but yet not doing a proper workup and really not educating the patient about what to anticipate. My goal is always to optimize and for us to have the healthiest pregnancy possible. And that's where you come in.
1: <laughs> so yeah, that I could not agree with you more. Where this journey started for me, I finished my training back in 2015, took my first job in Florida and you know was still single. So did a lot of networking, met a lot of female physicians who then became very close friends of mine. And in those sort of off non-professional, off the record discussions really came to light just the lack of awareness that these friends of mine who not only are they physicians, but they're OBGYNs as well. And there was so much like, oh, I didn't know that. Or "I Mm -hmm. I wish I would have known that. And that's really where my journey started with the education piece, because I realized if these friends of mine who are in the medical profession and who are in women's health don't have a clear handle on this, I can only imagine what the average woman or what the non-medical person has as their basis for understanding. So I I think what you say about training is probably true for many programs. I think that you know, REI is one of those specialties. So REI stands for reproductive endocrinology and infertility. So it's all things, women's hormones and the menstrual cycle, as you mentioned. And I think it kind of gets a little bit left behind because, you know, there's other more acute, more severe emergencies happening during an OBGYN's training. But that said, I mean, I think this is more and more, a, you know, a piece of information that needs to be discussed during the annual visit. If you actually read ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, their annual screening recommendations, fertility planning and the family building journey is actually a part of that discussion. So, you know, when I, by the time patients have come to my office, most of them have been trying for two, three, four years. Some of them have even done treatment with their OBGYNs. So it's really You know, I would love to see them way sooner in their journey than I am right now. And so that's a big part of why I'm in this space.
0: I love that. And I I agree completely. I am probably, I'm on the earlier end of sending patients out. I'm not trying to be a hero. I definitely want them to get the best care and the best options presented to them. And so the question that I always ask at an annual exam, if it's not blatantly obvious, you know, like they've had a tubal or whatever, is, you know, are you planning to have, you know, what is your plans for family planning? Are you wanting to have a pregnancy in the next year? And if the answer is yes, then, you know, we need to start prenatals. We need to start looking at things. You know, are we having regular ovulatory cycles? Kind of all of the, all of the things. And if we have concern there, I'm going to send them out sooner than later because I want yeah. them- to the most yeah. time that they potentially have. A lot of times, we're waiting later to have to start our families,
1: right? And and I think for you know, when <laughs> when you read the textbooks, right? So the, the textbooks will tell you if a woman is under the age of thirty five and they've been having unprotected intercourse for at least a year, they need to be referred to a specialist. If the woman is over thirty five, then that that gets shortened down to six months, right? But, you know, my philosophy is if a patient is concerned enough about her fertility to be asking you about it, to be asking her ob about it, I do think that there is some minimal testing or information or even doing the consultation at that moment. Even if we end up doing testing and then deciding, hey, you know everything looks good, we'll continue to wait out that year. If they're concerned enough, I think they should be referred in at that time. And I can't tell you how many young patients I see that are like, well, I was told to just keep trying because I wasn't at a year yet. There's also a bunch of other reasons why you may see somebody, a fertility specialist sooner than a year or those six months in terms of the timeframe. So as you mentioned, if you're not having regular cycles, that's not normal. That means you are not ovulating. We need to figure out why. Let's say your partner has a known male factor and we know that there's going to be difficulty there. We want to start sooner rather than later. If you've had a history of you know, a significant STD or pelvic infection or things like that, you definitely want to make sure your tubes are okay. So we're going to start, want to start sooner rather than later. Another big one that's been getting a lot of attention recently is endometriosis. And not to, you know, endometriosis is in a talk in and of itself, but if you're having Severely painful periods or pain with intercourse, particularly deep thrusting, that's definitely something you want to mention to your OBGYN. You definitely don't want to dismiss those symptoms. So those may all be potential reasons to see a fertility specialist before that six-month or that 12-month marker. That's great information. And I want to kind of touch and go a little bit deeper
0: on the male factor infertility, because I think that's one that we overlook a lot, especially as women, we, we take it all in on ourselves, right? It's it's my body. It's failing me. What can I do? Right. But what are the things that we should look at? So I always ask, you know, has your partner ever fathered a child, right? Do they have any health concerns? Like, what are the things that we should be looking at for the male factor?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I want to point out, and I think most people actually don't know, is that male factor makes up about a third of infertility cases. So male factor alone is responsible for 30% of the patients that I see. And then an additional 20% of the cases when there's both a male and a female factor issue. So 50% of the time we find something with the guy. So it's definitely worth exploring. And there's there's going to be some obvious signs. So for example, if the male has substance, for example, if he's a regular drinker or a regular tobacco smoker, we know that those can affect male fertility.
0: What about testosterone?
1: Right. If he's you know obese. So we know that men who are severely overweight have increased levels of circulating estrogen that may impact their sperm production. We know that men who have chronic disease, things like poorly controlled diabetes, poorly controlled high blood pressure, that can also play a role in infertility. You mentioned testosterone. I don't see it so much these days, but about four or five years ago, I was seeing that so often where men were trying to boost their fertility and unknowingly taking testosterone or taking steroids or taking things to help you know, boost their... Te- but actually what they were doing was suppressing their sperm production because giving outside testosterone or external testosterone was suppressing their internal testosterone production. So thankfully I'm seeing that less and less, but definitely a question we always ask. So there's going to be some obvious reasons why um, a man's sperm should get checked, but even if there's not obvious reasons, the male factor is a basic part of a fertility evaluation.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely and usually that can be done in the REI's office or with the urologist correct
1: right so most obgyns would be comfortable ordering the semen analysis and there's different you know labs depending on where you are geographically certainly a fertility specialist would be the one you know to also order and it can be done in most fertility clinics now in the last 2 to 3 years there are some at home tests that have come around because there is a lot of embarrassment. And there's a lot of fear that guys feel surrounding the semen analysis. And, you know, to this day, I mean, I've been in practice seven years, not including all my years of training. The semen analysis is always the last thing to come (laughs) in.
0: Right, right, right. right.
1: (laughs) It's always the struggle to get them to do it. And so there's definitely sort of this un- you know this taboo or undiscussed piece of the feelings and emotions you know what if it's abnormal what does that mean for me and my manhood and and you know what does that mean for me as a man etc so it's definitely you know there's a lot of a psychological component that goes along with that semen analysis and i think that the comp- the industry is now responding to that and so in the last 2 3 years i've seen a couple come up, I wouldn't just buy anything. I would at least talk to a provider, whether it's your OBGYN or your fertility specialist, to see if they have one that they prefer. But at least it's a first step in the comfort of the band's home to get something done.
0: Interesting. And so then the, do those results come to the patients? Correct. The results come they to the they Take them to their doctor. Correct. Do you have one? Not, I know you're probably not sponsored by any, but do you have one? That you recommend asking for a fellow OB/GYN.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely none that I specifically endorse. There's two that I'm familiar with that are out there right now. Yo is one of them, and then Fellow is another one. And those are those have both kind of made the rounds within the infertility community. But I certainly would not endorse any of them. Okay. okay. Yeah. So definitely, always talk to your provider first. Okay. Good.
0: I'm comfortable ordering the semen analysis. It's just, I don't necessarily know how to give them adequate information with the results, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that's a great point. And I think, you know, what I always tell my referring providers is even if you order it and then have them make the consult so that when they come to me, the workup is done, it makes for a much more productive discussion. So even, if, you know, even if you can at least order it to get that ball rolling by the time they get in to see me. As far as the results, it really depends on where it's done. Most fertility clinics are using the newer WHO criteria. And so there's four different parameters that we look at. We look at the amount of ejaculate, the amount of sperm, the forward movement, also known as progressive motility, and then the shape of the sperm or morphology. Mm-hmm. So, so Parameters that we look at. But honestly, depending on the lab, those may vary a little bit. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's helpful information because I feel like we hear
0: a lot about female infertility, but what about this male factor that is a third of the cases? So I absolutely thank you so much for kind of shedding some light on that for our audience. But let's take it back to the woman because women are the ones who are mostly listening. (laughs) Uh, And let's
1: talk about the menstrual cycle and our ovarian aging. Yeah, no. I So this is a conversation that I probably have anywhere from five to 10 times a day in my office. And so what I explain to patients is that, you know, we as women, we are born with a set number of eggs we're going to have in our lifetime. And that's actually different than men. So men have the cells in their testicles to generate new sperm every three months. So their reproductive lifespan is much longer. There still is Testicular aging, and depending on the study, that ranges anywhere from 45 to 55 years old and beyond, but men can be parents much later in life versus women. So our magic number is 35. And essentially what we see is that under the age of 35, the number of eggs present and the quality of those eggs present tend to stay fairly stable. There is some decline, but it tends to stay fairly stable. Over the age of 35, if you imagine a diagonal line down, there's a very slow and continual loss in both the quantity of eggs as well as the quality of eggs. And then above age 40, that diagonal line now becomes much more vertical. It's much more dramatic. So the year-on-year changes are much more severe. So when we talk about success rates with treatment based on the number and quality of eggs, from 40 to 41 is going to be a big change from 41 to 42 is going to be a big change. And from 42 to et cetera. Yeah. So the idea is that every month we ovulate one egg. And I think most of us know that. What most of us don't know is that every month there is a group or a cohort of eggs that is sort of there. I, I call them the potential recruits. So they're kind of ready and waiting while on the headlines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put me in coach. <laughs> Exactly. So sort of those follicles that are potential recruits or, or eggs in waiting. And we have the hormone coming from the brain to recruit one of them. And it gets selected to be the dominant follicle to go on to grow and ovulate. And so the rest of them undergo a process called atresia, where they die off and they reabsorb. And so the following month, a new group or a new cohort will appear and the process starts all over again. So in our 20s, let's say we average 15 to 20 eggs a month in that cohort. Remember, only one gets selected out to ovulate. As we get older, so age 30, that maybe goes down to 15. At 35, that maybe goes down to 10 to 15. And at 40, it goes down and down. So that is what we call ovarian reserve. So when we talk about ovarian reserve, we're talking about what is that group or what is that cohort that that patient has at the beginning of their cycle? Because Mm -hmm. that is what the fertility specialist is going to be working with when it comes to treatment. So there's different ways to measure ovarian reserve. And that ovarian reserve is basically measured two ways by vaginal ultrasound. And ideally that vaginal ultrasound is done during your menses because that's when things are quiet. So that's when we have the most accurate read. And then by blood, by blood work. And when we do blood work, there's two hormones that we're looking at. One is AMH or anti-mullerian hormone. And I call AMH the new kid on the block, although now not so new. It's been around 10 plus years. The nice thing about AMH is that it can be checked anytime. So any time of the cycle, if you're on birth control, if you have an IUD and you just want to check a measure of your egg reserve, AMH is a great hormone because it can be done at any point. The other hormone that we look at and have looked at traditionally is FSH or follicle stimulating hormone. And that is the brain's recruiter hormone. So that's the one that goes into the ovary and says, okay, which one is gonna, which one of you guys is going to be that dominant follicle for this particular month? But when we order FSH, we always have to order an estrogen level with it to be able to interpret the value. So when we order FSH, it has to be done at the beginning of the cycle. The patient cannot be on any hormones and has to be checked with that estradiol level. So because of those restrictions, AMH just tends to be an easier hormone because of the less logistics involved. So those are the three markers of ovarian reserve. And as a fertility specialist, if I look at those three things, I can tell the patient where she falls in that egg quantity range for her age. So is she average? Does she have a higher than expected ovarian reserve or egg quantity or does she have a lower than expected egg quantity? And that's something known as DOR or diminished ovarian reserve. That mm-hmm. is something that we're seeing more and more of, and there are some theories as to why, but those are all in relationship to the ovarian reserve testing that we're talking about.
0: Fascinating. I love how you explained that. It made complete sense to me.
1: <laughs> Great. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> that's the <Okay>. goal. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that is how our ovaries age over time. So, and I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I just oh, want to add one thing because in particularly in Miami, I saw this a lot. Patients would come in and say, oh, my doctor told me I have the ovaries of a 30 year old and she's a 43 year old patient. Right. And, BS statement. <laughs> and so, yeah, exactly. And so I love that OBGYNs are being proactive and they're checking ovarian reserve because again, that makes my visit more productive. what we'll always have to keep clear is that quantity is not the same as quality. So even though a patient's egg quantity or ovarian reserve may be very good, may be very robust, at the end of the day, the age is going to determine the quality of the eggs that we're going to be working with. And ultimately, quality is going to determine the likelihood of success with treatment. So I just wanted to make that distinction clear before we moved on. And
0: let's,
1: well, let's talk about that a little bit more. The quality of the egg, you know,
0: most of the time, whenever a woman has a miscarriage in that first trimester, you will say oftentimes the cells divide abnormally, you know, whatever you have an increased risk of trisomy, et cetera. Talk about what that quality translates I could could see how many people would hear it and go, oh, so I have bad eggs
1: now. (laughs) (laughs) So no, no, not bad eggs. So, and there, it's a little bit more complex than what I'm going to say, but the way I try to break it down and explain it in a way that patients can understand. The idea is that an egg has a full hundred percent complement of DNA. The egg then has to release half of that DNA so that it can be ready to receive the DNA that's coming from the sperm. So so it can be fertilized by that sperm and now reconstitute that 100%, okay? So as a woman ages, when when that egg releases its 50%, it's more likely to do it in an abnormal fashion. So when the egg is giving its 50% to the sperm, it's actually not giving 50%. It's either giving more or it's giving less. And so ultimately, That DNA complement for the embryo, again, embryo is a fertilized egg by sperm, is going to be abnormal. It's either going to have too much DNA or not enough DNA. And we know that abnormal embryos are less likely to implant, and we know that abnormal embryos are more likely to miscarry. And so some of the statistics that I talk about with patients is that if you look at a fertile 35-year-old female, likelihood of pregnancy is about 20% per month that same patient still fertile at 40 is about 5% per month. And again, it has to do with the higher likelihood of having an abnormal embryo and that abnormal embryo is less likely to implant. Risk of miscarriage at 35, we typically quote about 10 to 12%. By age 40, it's almost 40%. So there's a fourfold increased risk of miscarriage, purely based on age alone, because of this DNA egg quality component. So hopefully that explains that a little bit better.
0: Yeah, I think it does. That's great. That's great. So when should women be seeing a specialist? Yeah. I mean, kind of touched on that a little bit, but I want to talk about just just maybe alleviating some of those fears about going to see a specialist. You know, what would that workup necessarily look like? Let's let's pretend that the OBGEN sent you end at 35 because it's been six months and you haven't achieved pregnancy, really haven't had any workup. What would that look like in the REI? Sure.
1: So the first thing I always tell patients, and I think we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but if you're concerned enough to be talking to your doctor about it, then you're concerned enough to at least have that consultation. So no fertility specialist will turn you away for wanting to at least sit down and have that conversation. Okay. So that's number one. Yeah. I love that. And you can make the consult yourself. Yes. Correct. You can, you can make the consult yourself. Exactly. You do not have to wait for the OBGYN to send that referral or the PCP to send that referral. And so you absolutely can make that consultation yourself. The second thing is when you talk about a fertility workup, and again, I'm going to talk to you, like I'm talking to my patients every day. I talk about the five things or, you know, I show up, I show my hand and I go through each finger. And so we talk about number one, semen analysis, which we spent time talking about because it's a third of the cases. So pretty easy thing to do. So semen analysis is definitely a part of that evaluation. We also talk about that vaginal ultrasound, typically during your menses. And again, that's assessing that ovarian reserve. We're also going a step further, right? We're also looking for pathology. Are there cysts? Are there fibroids? Are there things that could be structurally interfering with fertility? But really- Even if everything is normal, we're taking that extra step of looking at the size, shape of the uterus, size, volume of the ovaries. And I think of the ovary like a chocolate chip cookie. So I'm looking at the size of the cookie and the number of chocolate chips. And that has always just stuck as a really great visual for me. So in addition to the semen analysis and the vaginal ultrasound, do do hormone testing. And typically the fertility specialist will want you to get that hormone testing on days two, three, or four of your menses, just so they can get everything all together. So that AMH that I mentioned earlier, the FSH, the estradiol. So we're looking for those hormones. If patients have irregular cycles, there may be some additional hormones that we look at. But there's also going to be a complement of what I call pre-pregnancy testing. So things like a blood type varicella, rubella, you know, are you immune? Do you need vaccine boosters before we get pregnant? You mentioned diabetes at the beginning of our talk. If a patient is overweight or obese or has a family history, we might check, you know, make sure she's not diabetic before we start treatment. So there's, there's some pre-pregnancy testing and every fertility specialist is a little bit different in what, what and how they order it. Um, But most of us are doing that to some degree. Okay. So again, semen analysis, vaginal ultrasound, blood work, And then most of us are doing some sort of tubal assessment. And the majority of clinics are doing an HSG, which is a hysterosalpingogram. And that's a dye study to make sure the fallopian tubes are open. There are a few other modalities that are not as frequently used that are also possible. But essentially what we're trying to do is assess the fallopian tubes. And that cannot be done with just a regular vaginal ultrasound, right? And then lastly, we talk about genetic carrier screening, and so if the ob has not talked about that, we are probably talking to the patient about carrier diseases. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a talk in and of itself, but basically the idea is that you are normal, but you may be a carrier of a disease. For example, cystic fibrosis or spinal muscular atrophy. If your partner is a carrier for the same disease, then potentially the baby could have both bad genes and then that baby would be affected. So definitely, you know, it needs a more in-depth conversation than that, but, but just a brief explanation of what that looks like. So those would be the five components to the fertility evaluation. Perfect. Perfect. Well laid out.
0: Okay. Let's switch gears and talk about lifestyle modification. Yes.
1: Yes. So Lifestyle is something that I have began, begun to incorporate more and more into my discussions with patients because I realized number one, I was getting a lot of questions about it. What can I do? You know, infertility, patients, there's there's this sense of loss of control, right? I am not in control of my infertility. I am not in control of this treatment. So right. what can I do to optimize my fertility? What can I do to regain some of that control? And, and I think lifestyle is a huge piece of that. And we're going to start with sort of the big things. So if you have any sort of chronic illness, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, lupus, thyroid, any of those things, you want to review your medications. You want to make sure they're in control. You want to make sure the medications that you're on are safe for pregnancy. So a lot of times as a fertility specialist, let's just say the patient is taking a blood pressure pill that's not safe for pregnancy. We want to switch them now. We want them to go back to their primary. Make sure they're switched, make sure they're stable so right. that when they do get pregnant, they're already well-managed and we're not trying to do that switch once they're already pregnant. Right,
0: right. We don't want to do that at their first OB visit when we're like, oh, exactly. wait, this is not yeah. the medication to be on and we're already through the first trimester. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. So those are some, some of the big sort of obvious things. So again, reviewing your, your problem list, I call it, or, or you know, medical diagnoses, making sure those are optimized reviewing your medication list, making sure those are optimized for pregnancy. And then we talk about substances. Again, this may seem very common sense, but it is something we always review. You would be surprised with uh, caffeine and alcohol, how many discussions I have to have about cutting back on those. And, you know, I think tobacco and and other sort of uh, recreational substances, I think people understand that kind of commonsensical caffeine and alcohol are such an integral part of our daily life in our American culture so definitely a discussion that i have with every couple and then the third piece that i always talk about is weight and that can be both underweight and overweight and asrm my governing body the american society of reproductive medicine has a great little infographic about weight and fertility mm-hmm. and we use bmi and again you know it's not the best marker of of health but it is what most of us use if you are underweight or if you are obese There is actually very good data in the medical literature to show that that is going to impact your ability to achieve a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And really focusing on trying to optimize that weight, either you know trying to get into the normal range from underweight or trying to reduce into the overweight category from obese, will definitely be helpful in terms of things that you can control as you look now towards testing and treatment for your fertility.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When we talk about weight really what we're talking about is lifestyle, nutrition, exercise. Um, A lot of people will ask me, you know, is there a fertility diet? Is there a certain type of exercise? And I think for me, You know, number one, that's not my wheelhouse, and so I always work with specialists. Whether that's you know a registered dietitian who I you know have partnered with a few throughout my career to make sure we're treating the patient completely, whether that's a physical trainer or whatnot. So I try not to overstep my bounds in that regard. But my one message is: what is going to keep you consistent? What are you going to be able to do in the long term? Because doing you know the the rapid Kind of I'm gonna lose 20 pounds bad. Yeah, bad diet that's not healthy and it's not long term. Yeah, other thing and the other reason I believe working with professionals like dietitians is so important is because for some diseases. So for example, you know, intermittent fasting is really popular right now, keto, really popular right now, both terrible for PCOS patients, Mm. terrible for patients who have ovulatory dysfunction. So Mm really understanding what your underlying diagnosis is and how to best address it from a nutrition standpoint, I think is super important for optimizing your long-term health and your fertility. When you talk about endometriosis, anti-inflammatory foods can be a big thing to help you know, control symptoms and potentially mitigate that pain, at least to a certain degree. Not that medication won't be necessary, but again, optimization and control. So I think working with professionals is super important in that regard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It does take a multidisciplinary approach because we cannot be the experts on all the things. Exactly. (laughs) And pretending that you are is a disservice to patients in my opinion. So I- Absolutely, absolutely. So
1: for me, it's like, here are all the resources and of all of this, what are you going to be able to do long-term? Right. Can you incorporate and really make a lifestyle change? The other question I get a lot for rapid weight gain is medication. You know, oh, my primary said they'll prescribe phentermine. What do you think about that? And, you know, so we have to have that discussion. And I really just don't think that that is a good long-term approach to what we're trying to do here. Yeah. I want to bring it
0: back to the caffeine and the alcohol comment, because I really think that there is such a wine culture in our society. I'm not judging, just saying it's there. And especially moms. And- we need to know like what is a reasonable amount to consume and when is it affecting our fertility and
1: the same with caffeine, right? Because, you know, some of us are just tired and trying to make it through the day. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a full-time working mom, I understand that more than anyone. Caffeine is like my, my lifeline. And uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely enjoy a glass of wine myself. And I think it's, you know, it's everything in moderation And if we can actually pause right now, I want to pull up the the chart from ASRM just to give you like the actual data. So give me one second. So regarding alcohol and caffeine, obviously that is you know a huge component of daily life for most people. And there really isn't a strict guidance on how much or what to do, definitely excesses have been associated with decreased fertility. So as it relates to caffeine, I would say that greater than five cups a day has been well-documented in the literature. And when I tell patients five cups a day, they're like, oh, no, 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 don't worry. But I'm like, wait, 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 (laughs) this is five cups of regular coffee, not your venti triple shot, because that's going to equate to more cups, right? So you just have to be careful in terms of how you're translating the information. And for an eight ounce cup versus a, you know, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so kind of, if I tell patients, if you are used to having your regular cup of coffee in the morning, that's fine. Don't decrease that because there's also stress associated with the restriction, right? And the sort of, I'm sacrificing all of this for my fertility. I'm giving up all of these things. So it's really trying to maintain a sense of normalcy, maintain a sense of routine. So if you're used to having one cup of coffee in the morning, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you to stop that. Now, if you're working nights and you're drinking monster energy drinks to get you through the shift, and then you're doing coffee to wake up and then you're, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or any of those energy drinks, really that that's, we got to cut back and we got to figure out a way to get you to to a more regular type of consumption. And so the same is true for alcohol. When you look at you know more than two drinks a day for women, it really does show an impact to fertility. So, I mean, is having one glass of wine a night going to be a problem? Mm, probably not. But... If we're trying to optimize our lifestyle, if we're trying to get as healthy as possible to go into treatment, if we know that alcohol alters our brain and our neurotransmission and we're going to be doing hormone treatment, do we really want those interacting with each other? So for me, I try to counsel patients, you know, if you need this in your life, again, for that sense of routine, that sense of normalcy, one glass of wine a week or two beers a week, I'm okay with, I'm not going to tell you to cut alcohol out completely, but I think it's all about moderation and what's going to keep you sort of, you know, from losing it as you go through this process. Right. Right.
0: Because the infertility journey is a very emotional process. I, watched that firsthand with my sister when she went through it. And I was really a little upset with my training because I was like, how do I not, I really didn't feel equipped. I didn't have the tools to help her adequately, but I knew where to send her to get the help. Right. (laughs) But that is, it's emotionally, physically, financially draining on a relationship for sure.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, again, as the medical provider, there's only so much that you can address in that, but I think, and, and you would actually probably speak better to this. I feel there's a lot of similarities with, the fourth trimester. Or we know, you know, if the C section scar has a hematoma or if there's an abscess or, you know, mastitis or whatnot. But the emotional aspect, the psychological changes, I mean, all right. those hormone changes that are happening that are so stressful for a new mom, so right. much of that is relatable to fertility. And I don't think it's talked about enough. So, you know, the, the comparison I always give, and, and I, I remember just my jaw hitting the floor when I heard the statistic at an ASRM meeting is that women's cortisol levels who were going through IVF were comparable to women going through chemo and radiation for cancer therapy. Wow. That, well, Yeah, yeah. And I just remember being blown away by that because stress is such a hard thing to measure, right? Like how right. do you objectify that? But, but that really put it in perspective to me. And I tell that to every patient because I'm like, listen, we know this is going to be stressful. We've got the data. Here it is. So how are we going to be proactive? How are we going to get out in front of this? What is that for you? But being proactive about stress management is such a huge piece of this. And in some states like Massachusetts, where IVF is covered up to six cycles, which parentheses is amazing, amazing because financial barriers tend to be the rate limiting step for most patients. But when they looked at the reproductive psychology of patient dropout in those states, it was not financial because they had the, they had it covered. It really was the emotional toll and the burnout that happened going mm. through and the patients ultimately dropped off after cycle three or four because they just couldn't do it anymore. So stress yeah. is a huge part of this. I mean, again, another talk in and of itself for us to, to talk about in terms of how to be proactive and how to manage that, you know, and some yeah. people it's telling their friends and family Some don't because then they get the unwanted questions. So then it's, okay, you know, group support, online support, therapy, counseling, incorporating meditation. I did an Instagram live recently with Dr. Andrea Rosenbaum. She talked a lot about mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy, which was fascinating in terms of stress management through the journey. So I think there's a lot patients can do, but I think the first step is acknowledging it and just recognizing that, you know what? this is stressful and it's going to be stressful. So let's just get
0: out in front of it. Yeah, absolutely. So quickly, as we wrap this up, let's talk about the treatment options, because I think so often whenever patients go to see the REI, they're like, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do IVF. And they think that that's the, the only route that the reproductive specialist is going to offer them.
1: Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. And you know, I always give the example, I I am great I'm so grateful to Hollywood because they have really lifted the taboo lid off of infertility. So patients and and just society in general is much more comfortable talking about infertility and their journeys than ever before I think in our in our society. So for that I'm extremely grateful. However, with that, comes the fact that everybody thinks that seeing a fertility specialist is going to equal IVF. And that is 100% not the case. Really, the treatment has to be individualized. It has to be tailored to each case. And depending on the diagnosis is really where the focus of the treatment should be. So for example, young patients who are not having regular cycles, their treatment may include something as simple as medication, with ultrasound monitoring, excuse me, oral medication with ultrasound monitoring and then intercourse at home. So mm-hmm. it could be very, very low invasive, less expensive treatment option. Mm-hmm. Intermediate option that's not talked about often, which is artificial insemination or IUI. Mm-hmm. IUI stands for intrauterine insemination. It's basically like a pap smear visit for the woman where we deposit the sperm inside the uterus and that's combined with fertility medication for her Jane the Virgin, she had the IUI. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, thank you. Yes, great example. And I feel like it's not really talked about much, but that's a great TV example of that. Reproductive surgery. So for some patients, they require surgical removal of different pathology before they're able to conceive and then potentially can get pregnant on their own. And then lastly, IVF. And IVF has a number of iterations of what it can look like. So you know, what you see in Hollywood or what you see on TV may not actually be what IVF looks like. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for running through those options. I know it's rather quick. I feel like we could have, you know, four or five episodes just around (laughs) this topic. Yes. yes. I'm so excited. And uh, for you to share this information with us. And I'm wondering if you might come back and do a little Q and a with us after. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to, I would love to be Awesome. So if you have any questions about infertility that we didn't address today, or you have more specific questions, you can send this to us at hello at Sky Women's Health, and we would be happy to have you back on to address these. Until next week, see
1: so you all. Well. Thank you so much.
0: All right, Sky Community, thank you for listening to another episode.